Welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And this episode, in honor of Pride Month, is all about the queer characters of Supergirl. We thought it would be fitting, obviously, because it's Pride Month, and then also some relevant things have happened, such as the Outfronts panel that Kyler and Nicole were on, along with Javicia Leslie, who plays the new Batwoman. And then the other people on the panel were one of the writers from Batwoman and an executive from Berlanti Productions, who has worked with all of the shows at various points. Mm, yes. And then also the comic debut of Nia Nall, aka Dreamer, happened this month with DC Pride issue number one, which Nicole Maines wrote the Dreamer portion of, which was pretty cool. And it was awesome. And the art in it was super cool. Yeah. So we thought for this episode, we could explore the question of like, what does it mean for something to be positive queer representation through the lens of, you know, Supergirl as a TV show? Which, if you hadn't guessed yet, is the focus of this podcast. (laughs) I know this may come as a shock. We've left some subtle hints. (laughs) We, like some of the queer characters in the show, have left hints as to the true nature of our content. Some codes. (laughs) But we thought it would be wise to offer some context for, you know, the different kinds of queer rep that we've seen in film and television because, you know, modern queer representation takes the shape it does because of its roots in, say, the Hayes Code, also known as the Motion Picture Production Code, which was a self-censorship, morality-based set of guidelines, which was applied to movies from 1934 to 1968. And it didn't just disappear after that time. It was adapted into the modern MPA rating system that is still in use today, Mm -hmm. and that there's still a little bit of a double standard in that something in the context of an opposite gender relationship might be rated lower than the same thing with a same gender relationship. Yes. So there were a lot of basically like purity standards. Yeah. It forbid interracial relationships or like the implication of sex. Like if you ever watched like I Love Lucy, where they have separate beds because you can't imply that they sleep in the same bed because that, oh, means something. And that's why it was such a scandal when they showed her pregnant on TV. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, actually thinking about that within the context with Supergirl, where, you know, it was no question that they were going to just work around Melissa being pregnant. Like that was a huge deal (laughs) only 50, 60 years ago. Yeah. (laughs) But part of the reason for this is because of a lot of other political things that were going on in the United States at the time, kind of like now. (laughs) So you had thinking, you know, to your mention of the forbidding of depictions of interracial relationships, you had a resurgence of the KKK Mm -hmm. in the generations raised in the post-Civil War era. These were people who came of age after the South lost and they were bitter about it. Hmm. And you also had the first Red Scare of the 1920s and then the more relevant one, the second Red Scare of the 1950s, which was like a virulently anti-communist thing. Mm. But within the second Red Scare, which had a very real witch hunt of people in the government who were kicked out for no reason because of political motives, you also had the so-called Lavender Scare, which was an intentional attempt by the U.S. government to purge its ranks of suspected 
deviant homosexuals. Mm. And like it was at its peak in the 1950s, but it carried on all the way through the Reagan administration in the 80s. So this stuff is still very recent in terms of its impact on culture and society at large. And it may sound a little bit similar to how now that the conservative branch of the government in the U.S. is out of power to some extent, they are now exerting their power at lower levels wherever they can mm-hmm. to get anti-trans and anti-queer legislation through, roll back a lot of civil rights that were passed under the Obama administration mm-hmm. and even a couple during the Clinton administration. And basically, you know, return us to the good old days. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, talking about the Hayes Code, as they called it. So-called for the person who created it. Right. Will Hayes, which has these quite clear ripples throughout, you know, media history with, say, bury your gaze. Mm-hmm. That trope, which by the guidelines of the Hayes Code, you couldn't depict queer characters unless you were condemning their lifestyle, which is to say, unless they ended up like dying at the end or having some horrible like punishment because of the quote unquote choice they made. <laughs> to be queer. So it was like a weird fairy tale like hitch to getting something that you mm-hmm. want where it's like you can have this <laughs> but only if you suffer. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> forever. And even though those guidelines are no longer in effect and haven't been in effect for an entire generation, mm-hmm. most people who are adults in the prime of their career now grew up on media that was still created under that system. Mm-hmm. And you do still see those tropes appear a lot, more so in cinema, where, for example, you see a lot of these, you know, big Oscar prestige films about queer characters that are what I like to call tragique. <laughs> so like Boys Don't Cry, mm-hmm. Brokeback Mountain, Far From Heaven, and Carol, both by the same director and mm-hmm. have the same very like big, sweeping, tragic endings. But then there's also still, we see it in television as well. Yeah. You may be aware of the controversy surrounding when a character in The Hundred died, which was a CW show. The character's name was Lexa. She was shot by like a stray bullet and she had been in a relationship with another woman. It wasn't the issue, too, that the relationship was finally like consummated and they confessed right. their love for Literally, each other like, like right, right after before that. <laughs> yeah, that she died. Yeah. So that brings to mind this idea of like, oh, you do something gay and then you're punished for it. And that brought attention to the trope of barrier gaze, which was a big thing that year where a lot of queer characters were dying. Mm, yeah. Lesbians specifically. Well, and I was going to say, you may think that sounds familiar because Alex says something like that in episode 209, that she feels like the universe is smacking her down for being happy literally after the first time she sleeps with her girlfriend. Yes. Yeah. And this is why we'll be also talking about Alex a lot. Yeah. And then we also have a very recent, you know, this past year in Supernatural, in which basically to me it feels like this direct Hayes Code relic in how it literally it felt was like not affirming at all. <laughs> not at all. So there's this sort of like, is there like a subtext here between the two male characters in the show? Like an intense emotional connection? Yeah. And then finally after how many seasons? <laughs> it was like 15. The angel character Castiel confesses his love for the character Dean and then right after is sent to hell 
Ah, which yes. Is, yeah. We love gayness as a sin. <laughs> yeah. So there were several years where they didn't like pursue that storyline fully. And then when they decided to, they sort of sent the message of like, well, we don't really endorse this. <laughs> For all of you who saw this in these characters, we're here to tell you maybe you were right, but we're going to crush your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh... Which is not the most tactful message to send. No. <laughs> but it's interesting, though, that you say it feels like a relic of an earlier time, because given for how many years it was on TV, it, it mm-hmm. kind of is. <laughs> That's fair. Like that is the fair. amount that the TV landscape has changed as far as queer representation in even the past five years right. has been huge. So for something that started airing, you know, in the era where people still didn't really publicly come out to anyone, mm. it's something. <laughs> it's something. Well, I mean, you have shows that, as time goes on, either don't adapt or they do. Like, Supergirl's a show that continued to try to make improvements to their representation. Mm. But that takes us to queer coding and its connection to the Hayes Code and how making a character queer wasn't allowed. Therefore, people would get around it by sending these signals that maybe other queer people would recognize. but not queer people wouldn't necessarily. Well, or that the censor boards that right, decide right. if your content can be on TV won't pick up necessarily and tell you you have to cut it. Yeah, which is something, again, that despite the code not existing anymore, continued to be a way that representation to some degree occurred in media going forward and often in positive ways, you know, doing the best you can with the situation you have. Take the television show Xena, Warrior Princess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's actually probably one of the most legitimate examples of mm-hmm. queer coding where pretty much everyone involved with the production of the show acknowledged like yeah that's a valid reading of this text Mm -hmm. we're not allowed to make it explicit Mm -hmm. but we're putting in as much as we can the other one that's really interesting is actually with glee santana and britney's relationship originally was subtext it wasn't planned as something that was going to develop but the actors pitched it they started sneaking it in through acting choices and (laughs) then the show developed a whole separate huge storyline for it that went on for Mm -hmm. the rest of the series yeah and you know shaped the baby queers lives (laughs) but then we also have situations where queer coding is used for evil (laughs) sometimes literally with queer coded villains yes so you can find a number of these examples in any media pretty much (laughs) um a couple disney villains come to mind immediately ursula Mm -hmm. from the little mermaid who was actually modeled on a specific drag queen Mm. Scar is another one who does a lot of very stereotypically gay, male, effeminate gestures. Yeah. You tend to also in, let's say, the action genre, see it a lot with the villain characters, Mm -hmm. almost in a way that's linked to toxic masculinity more broadly, where they're intentionally coding the villain as something that's, you know, not manly in the traditional way and that's othered and something to be looked down upon or belittled. And that's where the fact that it then is queer coded becomes harmful because you're saying that it's shameful or bad in some Mm -hmm. way. Exactly. So while there was a lot of media, particularly in the 1980s, in the 1990s, and then a little bit still in the early aughts, that used queer coding because for many reasons the particular production couldn't do explicitly queer characters Mm -hmm. and that's better than nothing. The unfortunate flip side to that is 
because it's subtext, it's often subtle by design, which means Mm -hmm. that sometimes people who are not queer and don't see those signals don't believe you (laughs) that it exists within the story and that your read on it is real. Mm -hmm. So that's a bummer. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So something obviously must have changed socially for the shift to happen between these kind of more subtle attempts at pushing characters through and then the move back Mm. to explicitly queer stories that we hadn't seen since the 1920s when cinema was new. Right. And part of the reason for that was the very public way that the AIDS crisis was depicted in the public consciousness. Mm. Not the crappy parts with Reagan (laughs) just ignoring it and letting gay people die kind of the same way that... The Trump administration ignored the pandemic for a while because it was affecting blue states. Yeah. And disproportionately black communities, etc. Yeah. yeah. But you started to see kind of a, a next generation, second wave civil rights movement mm-hmm. in minority communities in the late 80s and, and early 90s. And that was a big part of why you started seeing more diverse representation in media. And so... As you go into the early 90s, there's new publicly held political disputes over the rights of LGBTQ people, for example, like in the military, and then whether you can have something akin to marriage. People were not ready yet to be like, yeah, let's do all the things. But there were, you know, compromises being made pushing in that direction. And that's also when you started to see the compromising and the raising of the profile of LGBTQ characters on television, Mm. specifically more so than in film. The film industry is lagging in a lot of respects as far as progress on diversity in in any direction. Yeah. Which I think partially has to do with the production turnaround in Mm. television, the lower risk factor with like sending a pilot out there, seeing if it sticks and works and you can cancel a show if it doesn't. (laughs) Yeah. And one other thing in terms of like the relevance to Supergirl is that Greg Berlanti has actually been involved in this push since the 90s and was behind one of the first gay primetime romantic scenes between Mm -hmm. two characters on Dawson's Creek and then Mm -hmm. has been pushing the envelope further and further ever since to the point that he now has his own whole media production Hmm. center, kind of like how Shonda Rhimes has hers and Tyler Perry has one. And yeah, yeah. It's it's the refutation to that comment from people who never feel other of, well, if you don't like this, make your own. Um. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> and he did. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, and that's one of the reasons that it's important to look at this sort of historical context in terms of Supergirl as a show. And that representation and how Supergirl goes beyond maybe even subverting those harmful tropes from the Hayes Code era or the like lackluster kinds of representation to creating these queer characters who feel like fully realized people on par with not queer characters in that respect. Yeah. And specifically within a genre where that is still considered controversial, like Mm. the superhero, the comic book, the action adventure genres are still very, you know, male culture dominated Mm -hmm. in a specific way. So on that front, it's been doing a lot of newer kinds of things. Yeah, a lot of the the good hard work. (laughs) And now we'll take a closer look at some of the specific characters in the show who are queer, starting with Nia Nall, Dreamer. 
our season four newbie. And in the Outfronts panel that Nicole did with Kyler, Nicole was asked if she was afraid that Nia's story would be all about her being trans, which is just funny to think about in terms of like going from queer coding mm. and like hinting at stuff to being worried that that's the only <laughs> that's it. it's, yeah. it's just like oh super explicit and that's all she gets so you know there's this thing where you're asking for more yeah well and it's interesting because i think if it had been in the tradition of stuff from the late 90s or the early aughts where it was a character who appeared for maybe like three episodes Mm -hmm. that might be the whole story it's like hello i am a trans character here to remind you that trans people (laughs) exist and now i'm leaving bye (laughs) Mm -hmm. but obviously this was a character they intended to to stick around so she needs mm-hmm. to be a person <laughs> <laughs> this is true and i think that the ways that they made her a character beyond her transness were quite intentional nicole said in the panel that nia was a reporter first she was a hero first she was someone who was genuinely invested that other people are okay and fighting for people who can't fight for themselves and standing up to bullies in pizza shops <laughs> And like Nia didn't come out like to the audience and then to a character, obviously, at the same time until her second episode when it was like relevant to the story. Yeah. (laughs) And after a whole bunch of other things were established about her. First, she was Kara's mentee, like this new like Kara mini me in the elevator. Yes. And I love how strategically that was planned to have her come in with that same like bubbling nervous energy and have Mm. Kara have that moment of oh my god you're me Mm. acceptance and like it just endeared you to her immediately yeah you know if you like Kara as a person you have to like Nia because Kara likes Nia like it just (laughs) it was such a well thought out way of immediately making this character fit into the world and just be accepted in it yes that's a good point I like that and then you know we learned that she's a reporter with passion <laughs> who, who was willing to like argue with Kara about this like fashion district article that she wanted to do but then a character who also has these insecurities with actually voicing <laughs> that to, in a situation where she has to compete with someone else and we see that she's someone who stands up for people and with Supergirl to varying extents all the queer characters are like people before they are queer we learn about them as individuals and then you know a season later Alex comes out or a few episodes later we learn about Maggie being gay and with Kelly you know mm-hmm. we yeah. learn about her as James's sister and she has that whole emotion involvement there and a little arc with him and then it's like oh yeah you also like women (laughs) (laughs) yeah it doesn't come up until there's a reason for it too yes it's the way in natural settings in real life (laughs) those things come up yeah yes and this idea of like it being sort of a natural inclusion of queerness in the storyline matters because explicitly queer characters are a great way to subvert that queer coding or subtext only kind of representation. But if that's the only thing that you're trying to hit, you can end up with quite one-dimensional or or stereotypical characters that in their own right kind of otherize Mm, queerness because they don't seem like they're real people. They seem like they're this like caricature thing I don't understand. Yeah. Well, it comes back to that same issue of, you know, making any character inherently likable. They need to feel like a fully realized person. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so we see what I think is a good way to think about it. Queerness informing 
a character because if it's not informing the character at all, it can read as like inauthentic mm. or like a footnote or like if you're JK Rowling, <laughs> something Ugh. you say after the thing has been published. <laughs> years later. Yeah. Years later. Yeah. <laughs> but you want it to inform the character, but not define them and be the only thing about them that is important or be like maybe the most important thing in the world for the character. Nicole said, every time we have addressed Nia's transness, it wasn't for a trivial reason. It was always serving the story and it was always speaking to who she is as a character and informing that. So we see this idea of it informing. And she pointed out that her transness being brought up within the story is often linked to her identity as a hero. Take protecting Brainy in the pizza shop Mm. in season four. Yeah, in like her second episode, I think. Yeah. She said later to James... I know what it's like to be attacked and denied because of who I am. When I saw that alien being attacked, I couldn't let it pass, <laughs> which has that like Nia bite, <laughs> which is fun. That like dial it down to a seven energy. <laughs> couldn't let it pass. Yeah. And in that scene, she was talking to James about writing an editorial to stand up for aliens. And she revealed that she was trans to him to inspire him to do that and also like fighting for her community (laughs) it was super linked to her transness in Mm. season five well and you know what's interesting though she revealed that she was trans she did not reveal that she was half alien true that's fun (laughs) which is interesting in the sense of like which things she finds more relevant as a kinship Mm. factor true well especially because of the town she grew up in yeah exactly like yeah yeah because she lived in a town that was like aliens and humans living in harmony Hmm. but she was still a trans woman (laughs) well that's just interesting because of the intersectional piece there and something Mm. that eric carrasco said on twitter recently about the importance to him of representing like certain kinds of marginalized experiences and one of the things that they worked on in season four a little bit was like the immigration stuff and Mm -hmm. latin characters And Nia feeling like her identity as someone who is half alien didn't affect her that much in terms of being a marginalized person Mm. is kind of in that same space of people who are Latin American, who are all different skin colors, Mm. maybe feeling or not feeling like they are part of, you know, an oppressive experience in that way. So that was kind of a neat link there. Yeah. And then one of my favorite parts of Nia's character and her storyline, really, is the ways that her transness is specifically linked to her emotional arc and tied into all of her beliefs about herself. Mm, Yeah. And I've been thinking about it. I think Nia's core belief is is something around, like, I'm a mistake. (laughs) That's terrible. Yeah. (laughs) And... I'm a mistake, you know, it means A, she's terrified to make mistakes, which we definitely see with her and her powers specifically. And B, she feels like when she's chosen for something, that's a mistake. Mm. And and she's sort of an imposter, which brings to mind transness and how trans people are accused of being imposters, say with bathroom restrictions or like in sports and like dealing with body dysmorphia and, and a sense that who they are is like wrong or a mistake in and of itself. And, you know, like all foundational experiences for a person living in the world as a trans person will affect people differently and result in different sort of flavors of insecurity or resilience or other kinds of traits. So Mm. 
I'm a mistake is one of the many different ways that a core belief can be relevant to transness, Mm. which I thought was sort of an important disclaimer in terms of linking this idea in the ways that it is related to the trans experience. But with Nia, we see like in her introduction episode, Kara asks her about not standing up for her like article idea. What really happened? when Mackenzie took that article. Why didn't you want to compete? And Nia said, I guess I was afraid to make waves. And we see that same sort of energy with her sister when she's afraid to make waves with her by telling her that she has powers that her sister or her could have inherited. She tries to give them back to her. (laughs) And this idea that, oh, it was a mistake for me to get them. I've got to fix this. And Nia received these powers because she is, in fact, also a woman. And that was a narrative choice by the show that I absolutely loved in how boldly it was validating Nia's identity as a woman within the show. That was just such a nice piece of character storytelling Mm. where they were like, we're taking this stance, we're taking it very clearly, but it wasn't in your face in like that old school way. (laughs) Yeah. But Nia herself doesn't feel like affirmed by this sort of cosmic validation because of her own beliefs about herself that are super entrenched, which are like, she feels like she stole something from her sister that, you know, that it is a mistake because she, she feels like I am a mistake. And it's interesting because we don't have a full picture of her upbringing, but we do know that her whole family like assumed that her sister would be the one who has powers. Mm, Yeah. So this idea that like I'm not the one who's like the important one who's supposed to have the thing. I'm the other one. (laughs) As we're having this conversation, I just keep thinking that she's such a nice fusion of Kara and (laughs) Alex and their issues. Honestly, (laughs) truly, she fits right in. And then in season four, Nia fails to save her mom's life with her dream powers, right? And that makes her feel even more like she was the wrong sister to get the powers because her sister had done all this research on dream interpretation. She had dedicated her entire life to preparing to have those powers. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that. And Nia has been burdened with this thought ever since. Like it has not left her. And we see it come up in season five and season six. And apparently, as Nicole said, we'll see it come up again. And it also has, you know, ripples, as we say. In her relationship with Brainy. Mm, yeah. Her core belief and being a trans woman informs those interactions and the way that she sees that relationship. Take in the last episode, episode seven of season six, where her worst fear was that she made a mistake and killed Brainy. And the fear vision also starts off with Brainy not supporting her and not believing in her, which was kind of striking as... In the previous episode, he had been super affirming and supportive and encouraging in terms of that psychological concept that we talked about. But him, like, no longer supporting her has happened before in reality. In season five, when he, like, lied to her and broke up with her to do what he thought would save the world with Lex. And Nia spent the whole season, like, kind of quietly angsting about it on her own and then ultimately finally revealed to Kara how deeply she felt about it and and said the one person who supported me from day one who was always by my side who saw me for who I am and looked at me like I was beautiful he just broke my heart and I don't even know why and 
you know, him breaking up with her then really impacted her self-assuredness, which is relevant to the trans experience. As we saw in season five, Reality Bites, which portrayed one of the many ways that dating can be difficult and dangerous for trans women through Yvette, Nia's roommate, who was trans and a black woman and was catfished and then attacked specifically for being a fan of dreamer who at the Mm. end of season four had shared that she was trans as a superhero right and yvette spoke to this sort of yearning to be loved that every human or non-human and supergirl feels but which can feel so out of reach for trans people i wanted angus so badly to be real for someone to care about me to get me to adore me and she grapples with like whether or not to even consider like pursuing dating ever again because of that experience. And this is why Brainy and Nia are so important in terms of representation. Mm. They demonstrate that that kind of love is entirely possible and within reach. And they show them experiencing some pretty big difficulties and, and heartbreak. But like Nicole said, they always find their way back to each other, which provides a sense of hope in the face of like setbacks, which is important in terms of any kind of storytelling and specifically with regard to representation and being able to see yourself in another person, as we'll talk about with Alex, failing, getting back up and being okay. And this is one of the reasons that the Nia debut in DC Pride, number one, that Nicole wrote was so great. It was literally called Date Night. <laughs> it was. It was very cute. Yes. And the story was about Nia just trying to defeat a villain and get to her date. <laughs> <laughs> Living that superhero life. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. Which is, it's a very traditional setup in a nice way. It was. It was also very, in a way, in keeping with the tone of something you might expect as a Supergirl adventure. But it was very clearly, you know, Nia's point of view, Nia's voice as a character. There were also, and Nicole talked in the panel about making the explicit choice not to have it be, you know, like a very special story about transness. Mm -hmm. But there were subtle things within the art to make it obvious that that was part of the character. Like she has this very cute set of stickers on her little journal and one's a Supergirl one and one's a trans pride flag. Yeah. There's a point where she's observing some bad guys and she's like, what in gay hell? Uh, (laughs) Which like you can tell Nicole wrote this. Yeah. She actually posted the gif of what that was from earlier on her Twitter. Okay. (laughs) And then there's also the coloring uses the colors of the pride flag throughout Mm. to kind of emphasize Dreamer in these very powerful moments. There's a really cool full-page spread of the character in her suit. Mm. And then there was also just subtly the way that we see that Dreamer is a peer and an equal to Supergirl in the brief moments of conversation and saying, like, you know, she is a superhero who has arrived. She is welcome at the table. Mm. And she's awesome. Like, she has a lot of cool action within (laughs) the story. Yeah. Which is a nice sort of forward glimpse of Dreamer as a fully fledged hero and sort of a bookend to her initial introduction that you had talked about of like how she was like a mini Kara <laughs> and now she is separate, but, you know, on the same level as Supergirl. 
And then there's this other concept I wanted to talk about because of something Nicole said in the Outfronts panel, which is on our Twitter. You guys should watch. (laughs) It's quite good. And it's about how Nia is received as a character. Nicole said, what I was taking really personally was any form of criticism of who Nia is outside of her transness. Like if people didn't like her personality or a choice she made or something she did, I went into a panic and I'd get very defensive and very personally offended for some reason because I just wanted her so desperately to be liked and to be received well. Mm. Yeah. And one of the things that she specifically brought up was that first kiss scene with Brainy outside the vending machine Mm. and how she saw the criticisms that it was offensive or bad because she didn't ask Brainy first. Right. Which like was a little bit of an excessive scrutiny because Kara did the same thing the first time she kissed James in season one and Alex did the same thing the first time she kissed Maggie in season two. <laughs> yes. So, well, and Nicole referred to it like, oh, I can't have people seeing Nia as a predator, which is, of course, what she thinks of because mm-hmm. literally yeah. people see trans people as predators and, and trans women as like men pretending to go into bathrooms to see women or something, you know? Yeah, well, and she's been in the public eye dealing with all of that baggage since she was a kid so yeah literally. of course she immediately is afraid that it's being read in that way where it was part of it was just like a shipper thing and people needed mm-hmm. to chill but um <laughs> <laughs> but like it's really actually important that the way nia behaved with brainy was the same as the way mm-hmm. car behaved as the way alex behaved it is saying that these storylines are being treated equally which is exactly how they should be treated and you know it's super super important as far as representation that nia gets to have romantic arcs just like kara and just like alex which we will talk about more because that is also queer representation (laughs) Um, yes it is and nicole taking you know the little things very personally makes sense because Nia's the first live action trans superhero, which is kind of a big deal. And she's a representative of a community that is seeking acceptance and which grapples with those like I am unlovable wounds that we spoke about with Nia as a character. And so, of course, she wanted Nia to be loved and and accepted and embraced on the same level as the other characters. Well, and it's also, you know, within the idea of she's the first live action trans superhero there's a lot riding on that because she could be some people's only understanding of what it means to be trans. Mm. And there's that danger of, oh, do I do it in a way that comes off badly? Right. Is it too stereotypical in one way or another? You know, there's so much wound into that. That's stressful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, well, and then also the fact that, like, if Nia as a character is not well received, does that limit the possibility for more yeah. trans characters mm-hmm. like her? Well, and that was even the danger with Supergirl as a television show when it came on the air because it was the first live action female led superhero show since the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) apparently it did well enough, though, because we have we have Wonder Woman and such. (laughs) Yeah. But Nicole came to this conclusion that I had to accept for myself that Nia is first and foremost a person, (laughs) which is what we've been talking about pretty generally with regard to queer representation. And, And much like how explicitly queer rep isn't in and of itself enough to make like a three-dimensional character flawless characters which subvert the idea that like queer characters are evil (laughs) Mm. they're positive in that sense but they're also limited in their benefits because they're not realistic we can compare this idea to 
the Aliens of National City series that Kara did, which was demonstrating like the good, <laughs> the bad, the ugly, as they say, mm. and the the like lovable parts of Aliens, which can be positive traits or negative traits, as opposed to just trying to paint them as saints, <laughs> which was her initial take. And it backfired. And it backfired. But there is that that urge when you are trying to represent, you know, your own community of being like, we're great. <laughs> Everything's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> but it is more useful to just educate, if you can, people that aliens are just like you, even if they have differences, kind of like other people. Which takes us to then Dreamer's speech about being half human, half alien and trans which wasn't about like, oh, look how cool I am. <laughs> I just, you know, saved the alien bar from a group of terrorists. It was about, quote unquote, humanizing her and, and mm -hmm. showing that she's a person with like a hundred different traits that make her up, which some things you may like and some things you don't. But overall, I think it's interesting that the thing that Nicole said was most powerful for her was that, you know, despite or because of Nia's flaws as a character and, and the fact that she is a multifaceted person or character, people really do love this character, is what she said. And she's right. And she's right. <laughs> We're here to say that, that she's correct. And she has that sense from like the artwork and the, the creative stuff that fans do to demonstrate how much they care about the character, such as cosplaying, which I find to be very interesting in terms of something that can be affirming for someone like Nicole, who is trans and cosplay being like, this is a good shape. I want to look like this person mm. <laughs> and and how affirming that might be for trans people who historically deal with like body dysmorphia and, and image issues and, and trying to be like, no, the way that I am right now is great. It's beautiful. And, you know, in terms of Nia as a character who is loved and the way that that connects to her being a trans woman, Nicole brought up the most impactful fan interaction for her, which was the 2018 Comic-Con, wherein she was introduced as the first trans live-action superhero, and the crowd went wild. <laughs> and there was just this huge crowd and group of people, and she described how far back it went supporting her. And she said, to hear them all supporting me and supporting a trans superhero was really affirming for me, especially in 2018. As we were in the middle of the dark ages, <laughs> it was really, really nice to know that all hope was not lost and that we were still making progress, which is kind of wonderful to hear in terms of Supergirl as a show and something that we've mm. talked about a lot, which is like this idea of hope almost rooted in maybe the Obama era mm, and yeah. then the show serving as a beacon of hope within the context of not the Obama era, this period of time, which has been quite... It's been something that we're going to talk about in a future episode as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And and so that's Nia. That's Nia and all. And we are going to move on to Alex Danvers. Yes. With Alex, we see another situation where queerness informs the story. Mm. And in particular, sort of the core question of Alex's character arc. How can I embrace who I am if doing that means that my loved ones will suffer? Which may be relatable <laughs> for queer people as a theme. For Alex, it, it starts with being a human with needs, you know, when she's supposed to be like protecting Kara and Eliza. 
even when she was a kid and being this supportive force for her family when that's maybe asking too much of her. And it leads to this idea that she needs to be perfect, which to her in season two meant like, oh, wait, I'm supposed to be straight. (laughs) (laughs) And she gives the speech to Maggie when she's realizing that she is a lesbian. And she says, my whole life has been about being perfect, perfect grades, perfect job and the perfect sister taking care of Kara. And then when she comes out to Kara, she fears that Kara is disappointed in her and and sending her that message that like, oh, my loved ones will suffer or I'll be letting them down if I am who I am. With Eliza, she says literally, like, I feel like I'm letting you down somehow, which is a big fear for lesbians and, and queer people broadly in situations where you can't rely on the idea that your family will accept you implicitly mm. because of this idea that is pervasive in, in terms of queer people are bad and immoral, like we see the roots of in the Hayes Code. And maybe this this sort of, it's a sin mentality. Mm. Which definitely still exists, especially in a lot of more conservative communities mm. globally, not just in the U.S. Yeah. Well, and the echoes of it, while it may not be like literally, this is a sin, this sort of guilt associated with being queer still, you know, pervades And it's interesting because while Alex is definitely not religious, as we see in the show. Yeah, she's very not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. This sort of like it's a sin mentality kind of vibes with her general self-doubts and like, oh, I'm doing something wrong if I'm not protecting my family or like I'm spending too much time doing something like that's about my identity and myself. And so for Alex as a character, it's interesting in terms of queerness and resilience. Kyler said in the Outfronts panel, it's been overwhelming in the most wonderful way to see that people can see themselves and say, oh my gosh, if that person can do that, if they can beat this, if they can step through this fire, then I can do it too. Alex as a character fears that embracing herself and who she is and carving out a space for her needs will result in like the world imploding and, and you know, her family members all like dying. Which is not the most rational of fears, but there <laughs> we <know>. are. Yes. <laughs> and this sort of sense of like, I should have kept my mouth shut when she does come out as a lesbian because, you know, things aren't going well. And so like, therefore, it's inspiring to see her take those leaps and stepping into the fire and being like, okay, this is who I am. And coming through to the other side stronger and and a little bit more complete and happier, Mm. as opposed to the world actually including. (laughs) Alex is also just kind of an emblem of this idea of stepping through fire generally. (laughs) As someone who like repeatedly beats the odds amongst these super powered beings. So I did appreciate that framing from Kyler. And in terms of this idea of resilience and taking those leaps toward who you are as a person, Kyler also touched upon the importance of Sanvers as sort of a first love that didn't work out and demonstrating how that you can still be okay after that. Yeah. Which was the point of season three for Alex as a character. And I think is important for the women who love women community in terms of like, the first person you meet or lock eyes with will not necessarily ultimately be the person that you stay with and demonstrating different kinds of love stories because I think frequently in media featuring, say, lesbian characters, there's like one couple that stays yeah. together the whole time. Because there can only be one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's also a place where Supergirl has done an okay job of there being, you know, not just 
the one token character Mm. they actually feel like they're a little bit more a part of a world and their own communities to some extent like especially nia but we also see alex venture into that same queer space once in a while (laughs) literally the same it's it's nia's apartment where she sees (laughs) carl again yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) but you know going back to this idea of like there can be more than one love in a person's life we have kelly who comes in and kyler spoke about that and said to have an opportunity to show healthy meaningful relationships i think that gives a lot of hope to people which of course i latched on to as (laughs) the hope (laughs) yeah but i thought that was interesting in terms of what kyler sees as hopeful compared to say what Nicole also saw as hopeful with like people accepting Nia Mm. in that you know introduction during the comic-con panel yeah well the other thing about Alex that leads to kind of interesting discussion within female queer spaces is she's one of these characters who gets looped into these conversations about like how visible does a character's identity need to be to Mm. count if you will Because, like, the desire to be, like, conspicuously gay, I guess, is the way to put it. (laughs) It'll ebb and flow throughout your life, you know, as you move through the various stages of coming out and settle into who you are. And that's why Pride Month is exciting and can be a lot of fun. It's one of those times when you're like, I can go be with a squad and just, (laughs) you know put on my cool eyeliner and go crazy. Uh, um. (laughs) Yes, the classic (laughs) pride experience. I don't know. Eyeliner. Whatever. (laughs) Look, it's important. (laughs) And it's also why events like Pride Month or Trans Day of Visibility or various individual subgroup Pride days are so important to so many people. It's it's one of those times that you can like really embrace that side of it. Mm-hmm. But there's often a lot of discourse among queer audience members about, you know, how do you appropriately signify that a character in a piece of media is a part of our community, mm-hmm. especially if they're not in a relationship. Right. So it's been interesting to watch as someone who's been involved in this space and online in this space since I was a young teenager and you've been online since you were a little itty bitty thing too in this space (laughs) Mm -hmm. and just seeing the evolution of this conversation over time. And at least from my point of view, you see like the passing of marriage equality in the United States in 20, I think it was 2010. And then the rise in interest in shipping because of social media, which like shipping always existed, but social media like took away the veil and uh, (laughs) exposed it all to corporate interests that maybe should never have been allowed to see it (laughs) because now they like actively play upon it. Mm -hmm. And there's a bit of a a gamifying of it with the ability to like win points. (laughs) Yeah. And it's kind of led to this fixation on queerness being defined by a character being visibly in a relationship like that. That's the, the pinnacle. Right. That's what gay. representation is, yes. Yeah. It's one of those things that's like, it's a semi-invisible identity. So it's like, if you can't see something that indicates it, how how do you remind the non-queer audience that we're still here? Mm-hmm. And while that's a valid complaint, it can lead to this over-reliance on stereotypes, both within communities themselves, where you pass along a lot of information about, like, this is the one true way to be gay, but also within media itself in ways that can feel really regressive. So maybe having your characters dress 
talk or gesticulate in stereotypically gay ways. Mm-hmm. And it's especially regressive in media where there is only one gay as your representation. And then they just become a caricature like we talked about earlier. Right. And that's not good for anyone. Uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> whereas Alex's level of like... I'm just a cool lesbian doing my life things, being an action hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wearing a lot of eye makeup and, you know, living that pride life. <laughs> Is by far the most similar to like any and all queer people I know in my real life. And I appreciate that they took that route also because it feels really character true. Yeah. Alex is not A, the most social person. So her being like super into the queer community doesn't feel as right as maybe Nia. Yeah. She's also older. And she's got like a little bit more of a sense of who she is outside of that. Right. And I think for her that discovery was like fitting a puzzle piece into place and not like (laughs) starting the puzzle. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It did ultimately sort of have some dominoes falling over where she starts to be like, okay, I'm a lesbian. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. So this is the kind of, you know, life that I can have. Wait, I want to have children. That has a ripple effect of like, that's an important thing for me. And like her having that realization that like, this is maybe more important than a lot of other things in my life and her position at the DEO, etc. It's shaped who she is today, mm-hmm. but not in a way where like it fundamentally changed the other parts of her like personality. Yeah. So there's a level of kind of just casual integration of that piece of Alex's identity into the rest of who she is as a character that like is really cool. But then on the other hand, during the Outfest panel, Kyler was like, but everyone seemed to know that Alex was gay because of that one episode where she wore this one plaid shirt. At which point I went, yeah, the one in the episode where she goes to CatCo. And you had to pause the video because you started laughing. Yes. Well, it was definitely something people pointed out. And if you were in the Phantom at the time, you saw those posts like, okay, you know, one more one more check in that box. It was from episode 115 Solitude. You know what we're talking about. Don't pretend you don't. But yeah, I'm like, yes, Kyler, it was that. But it was that coming on the heels of the 14 previous episodes. Of Alex talking about her college boyfriends with disdain and (laughs) hating every interaction she had with Max Lord and her entire sense of style down to her very low heeled shoes and completely casual (laughs) Thanksgiving wardrobe and her reaction to Kara saying maybe it's time for you to come out. And then also the weirdly gay song choice that played over (laughs) her confession of secrets to her mother. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that part. Well, and then also, I mean, one of the in terms of the thought process that brought them to like, okay, let's make Alex a lesbian was this idea that like there's a certain sadness to the character Mm. and like that missing puzzle piece for the writers. Yeah. The same way that Alex had a missing puzzle piece for herself. It felt right in that sense. Well, and I think Greg Berlanti said later that they had wanted to start weaving it in sooner, but CBS wouldn't let them. Mm. So back to what we said earlier, this is an excellent example of queer coding (laughs) leading to a main text queer Mm storyline. Yeah. So that's Alex. And now let's take a gander at the lovely (laughs) Kelly Olson. Oh, Kelly. 
Kelly <laughs> is so interesting in that she, like Alex, is not super like flashy, I guess, about her identity as a lesbian. But to me, that makes a lot of sense when you take into account her background mm. in the military and especially the fact that she would have been serving during a time when... Don't Ask, Don't Tell was still in effect. And the rules of that law were if you came out, you could be fired. If you were caught in a queer relationship, that was essentially you telling everybody. So you were also fired. (laughs) And so we get this nice explanation in one of the episodes early on in her spending time with Alex in season four. And you learn that much like other characters in the show, Kelly gets what it's like to keep a secret that can Mm. wear you down, which is why then it does make sense that, you know, her reaction to the car thing would have just been like, oh, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she um, didn't feel like betrayed by it, you know. Yeah. And there's also this really interesting intersectional piece to it because Kelly, as a black woman, has spent her whole adult life in these white dominated professional spaces Mm. where there might be more kind of internal pressure to present as like traditionally feminine. Well, not Mm. so much in the military, but like there are super strict guidelines about like how you can have your hair and stuff. But especially now that she's in like this corporate space, there's a little bit more of this expectation. Like if she wants to be taken seriously as a professional, she has to look certain ways that are maybe like less threatening or you know less outside the norm right yeah which has a lot of weight in terms of the context of her being a black woman and something like hair you know Mm -hmm. you're expected to have like straight hair for instance Mm -hmm. and so on that front kelly's role within the show as both a black woman and a lesbian is a really important intersectional voice to have Mm. because Supergirl's lead female cast has historically lacked diversity. That's been a place they've really struggled to -hmm. bring in more voices. Yeah. But then the other thing that's really neat with Kelly's personal journey is that her choice to pursue psychology after she left the army and the fact that she's so eager to help other people seems to have started letting her open up more. Again, she kind of says this to Alex in season four about feeling like she's had the chance to really like mourn and figure out how her past fits into kind of where she is in life and that she's like ready to move on. Mm. So similar in some ways to where Alex was at that point in her life where she was like ready to be a little bit more open. Yeah. But also different. Yes. Well, and also the psychology career is interesting and fitting for her as this intersectional character who is a black woman and a lesbian and those being two sort of underserved in terms of Mm, mental health communities. Definitely. Which, you know, need the support. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and then there's also the piece of Kelly coming out of the military, which has that very like macho, stoic, nobody has feelings (laughs) kind of mentality. But then for her... You know, pursuing the psychology degree, going through therapy herself Mm -hmm. and giving herself the space to reconnect with her her own emotions and contextualize them and, you know, recover from her grief of losing her fiance and and all of that. Right. 
So I'm excited because season six has been laying groundwork for giving her a longer independent character journey Mm. that I think is probably going to build somewhat on the bits and pieces we got from her storyline in season five with Malefic and Jean. Mm -hmm. And then that made me realize that she had her own little storyline with the Martian (laughs) squad. Yeah. Which we love because that's also something that's very fundamental to Alex as a character. Hmm. Um, Yes. And it'll be interesting because Kelly as a character, you know, we talked about these situations where maybe she has been restrained in terms of expression. But she seems like a character who's very grounded in her sense of identity Mm, and not threatened or sort of exposed to the opinions of others in the same way that maybe Alex would be as this like external feeling person. Mm, Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see her explore this sort of insecurity that we've seen with her in the last episode of like protecting Mm. her loved ones. And maybe they'll have a connection to community for the character. Yeah. is in particular interesting. And going back to, again, the Hayes Code. (laughs) Everyone's favorite terrible thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We mentioned how it restricted interracial relationships. So Alex and Kelly would have been doubly offensive. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. And it's actually funny that we're talking about this now because today happened to also be the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision loving the Virginia in the United States, which basically declared that interracial marriage was legal. Yes. <laughs> and that was within living memory. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So representation of this kind of relationship is still essential in terms of advancing equality for these two groups of people. But it is one of those areas, interracial relationships, where the women who love women community within the fan space can have a blind spot. For example, let's take Lex's death from The Hundred. That had this huge controversy, which served to bring to light the barrier gaze trope. And even the creators of Supergirl heard about it and took that into account and had the benefit of bringing that to people's attention as something to avoid. (laughs) But In the same show, like a couple episodes later, a character named Lincoln, who was a man of color who was in a relationship with a white woman, was brutally executed. And this was after Ricky Whittle, who's the actor for Lincoln, decided to leave because the showrunner Rothenberg abused his position to make my job untenable. And he said that he bullied him, basically. And there was not a similarly sized sort of outcry at that very brutal, gratuitous death. So there are, you know, racism still exists within queer spaces. And so Kelly, a black lesbian in a relationship with a white woman, is really important representation for this queer community. Yeah. And Ozzy Tesfai has commented as much on her social media and specifically at one point in response to a news article about conservative backlash regarding the issuing of marriage licenses, which is a thing that still happens in conservative places around the U.S., they will sometimes say that because of their moral beliefs, they don't have to do their job and issue you your civil rights. Uh, (laughs) So the representation of queer interracial relationships and just interracial relationships, period, is actually still extremely important, as Mm. we can all see in the fact that racism is still pervasive throughout (laughs) all of American society. And 
you may have noticed us mentioning periodically the actors interacting with people on social media in both positive and negative ways. Yeah. These characters have done a lot of really good things for people, but they have not been universally positively received, as you may imagine, (laughs) especially given that the comic genre of TV and film is not dominated by either female voices or queer ones. You had people dropping the show back when Alex first came out because it allegedly killed the family vibe (laughs) of the show. Yeah. Which, I mean, again, speaking of the Hayes Code (laughs) idea of like, oh, this isn't family approved. (laughs) Yeah. And it's specifically because there was always this association between queer content and sexuality in the sense of people being more sexual or more explicit in their Mm -hmm. sexual behavior. Or like sexually deviant. Yeah. And this still affects a lot of modern TV. Actually, and this is an important thing to know, there are still stricter thresholds for allowed intimacy between queer couples versus, you know, straight ones. And shows like Supergirl sometimes have to pay extra in fines in order to get the content on TV or they have to cut it in order to get the episode to air. Mm. So that then also is something that affects the storytelling because you're limited by a lot of things that are beyond (laughs) the show's specific control. Yeah. They're not Supergirl, where they can (laughs) personally change the whole world. (laughs) Don't declare war on us, then don't start one. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I still literally two days ago saw people demanding that Alex be written out or killed off because Mm. they don't like her storyline. And Kyler mentioned in the Outfronts panel, and she's talked about this before, I think in the media season between seasons two and three. Mm. that she lost friends in real life over the coming out arc in season two and the fact that she stayed on the show and did it. Right. Which had to have sucked given, you know, the discoveries (laughs) that she made about herself around that time. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing that she said that was interesting was that it made her really reflect as a parent Mm. on the value of shows like Supergirl normalizing these kinds of storylines and just being very matter of fact about it and being like, these people exist and they're people. (laughs) And how, you know, that's the right approach to have because then you don't give kids weird baggage about it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and so kind of related to that, there have been ongoing complaints about Nia existing as a trans character and a superhero. But because of Pride Month and because of the DC Pride issue, this whole month, Nia's character and Nicole as a person have been getting pretty much daily harassment. And Mm -hmm. Nicole actually said something about it on Twitter yesterday. You know, she's been in the spotlight for this issue for so long that she's found coping strategies for it. And uh, her coping strategy was to take a little bit of the Miranda Priestly, how original (laughs) um, (laughs) tone. Original takes. (laughs) Yeah. But she she specifically during the Outfronts panel said about how challenging it can be for actors and for queer activists to protect themselves online using the tools available to them. And essentially, you just have to guess what keywords to censor Mm. or the alternative is you know being bullied out of the space because people just dogpile you and harass you which was a large part of the story in reality bites the episode Mm. in season five with nia and yvette and 
essentially, you know, the tools are insufficient. They're blatantly insufficient. Hmm. And part of the reason that filtering and muting and blocking just doesn't work is that inventive bigots, because humanity is full of creativity, find (laughs) new ways to say obscene and insulting things that get around the filters via Mm -hmm. different phrasing or they use emojis or memes or GIFs, which the words are embedded in the picture so you can't block them. Mm -hmm. And that's been happening a lot more frequently in the last couple of months, I've noticed. Mm. Javicia Leslie agreed on this point as a queer woman and a black woman. Um, (laughs) And Ozzy has previously talked about this as well. She's seen a lot of very hurtful and racist comments from alleged fans. Yeah. (laughs) Specifically negative language about the character of Kelly as a lesbian and as a black woman and as Alex's love interest. Right. And then the other thing that was very interesting about the Outfronts panel, and both Nicole and Kyler talked about it, I think, the last time they were at a fan convention before the pandemic. It was very clear in their comments that even the nice parts of interacting with fans and being a celebrity and a representative of a marginalized community requires a level of emotional labor from actors that they're not necessarily equipped for. Right. Especially given that they have their own baggage that they're bringing from their past as queer people and their own triggers Mm -hmm. for things. So then, you know, it just leads to this question of how much do they owe fans versus how much do they need to protect themselves and their own well-being, which is also a conversation that was instigated like in the realm of sports recently because Naomi Osaka chose to withdraw from the French Open rather than subject herself to rude and kind of cruel questions from the press Mm -hmm. and, you know, give herself anxiety attacks. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's something to keep in mind as interacting with the characters and sometimes the writers can, especially when you're dealing with like representation, be a lot of fun. And yes. and with Nicole, she has a ball with it. <laughs> and she sees everything, apparently, like the all-seeing eye that we talked about in season four. Yes. <laughs> and she's right. She does. <laughs> yes. But it's a privilege, not a right to have that kind of... Yeah, there's been a little bit of a shift in tone from not just fans of this show, from just fandoms generally, right? where people seem to think that it's a little bit more of a customer service thing <laughs> than yeah. art, where like you see a performance and you either enjoy it or you don't. <laughs> like, yes. like, you know, it's not like a drive through where you're saying you want certain things off the menu. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> and you see that with stuff like interacting with Ozzy and Nicole and seeking out like Lena content or some of the other characters. You see that in a lot of situations like where there's a panel and an actor is there and then a fan of a different actor just came to that panel to get them to talk about the actor they like (laughs) where there's this sort of like oh this is the thing I want (laughs) could you please provide it for me now (laughs) well and that's part of what you said about like the gamifying right of it where people think because you know you can rig an algorithm so Mm -hmm. there's also this mentality of like which is terrible because this is also a strategy that like Trump uses. If I say a thing over and over, I can make it real. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. And it's like, yeah, it's not no, quite no, no. how it works. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but to round out this episode on the queer characters, the Supergirl 
I thought we should just touch on some of the broader themes, which we talk about, frankly, a lot (laughs) in terms of Mm. Supergirl as a show and as a show that features multiple queer characters. Yeah. And the show specifically, as we've been saying throughout this episode, is not one that's explicitly about queerness, like as a storyline. Right. But it still features multiple queer characters in largely an organic way. And it makes a narrative point to demonstrate that they're powerful characters within the narrative, that they're heroic, and that they're necessary to society. Hmm. Like, they're embraced within that world and they're seen as a source of of support and guidance, essentially. Right. Kind of going to this idea, we saw pretty explicitly endorsed a couple episodes of the show ago. Different kinds of people bring different things to a community. Which takes us to this broader theme that is core to the show of Supergirl and also quite relevant to the queer experience of found family. There was just a really nice reference in 607 where Lena was like, oh, it doesn't really get any easier in terms of losing people, especially in light of the family I have left. And Nia responds, good thing this is our family now, right? And Nia is a character who had this falling out with her sister because of like a conflict centered around her transness and because obviously she said some pretty transphobic things to her at their last meeting. But she's found sort of a sister in Kara and a family in the Super Friends. And this is something that's core to Supergirl as a character. The idea that like after loss of, you know, a birth family, you can find another life and another family who will love you. And in terms of like this queer narrative, who will love you for who you are and and affirming that identity, which is another huge theme for Supergirl as a show and superheroes in general, which we've talked about as something relatable for queer people when you can't have explicit representation. Mm -hmm. And on that note, because as you may have realized, We talk about how the show intersects with the real world. Hmm. We wanted to call attention to the fact that 2021 has been a record-breaking year in the United States for anti-trans legislation, which is not a thing to be proud of. No. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. From like bathroom and and sports bans to outlawing gender-affirming treatment to minors. There's been, you know, over 100 from like 30-something states bills. So we're asking you to donate to the Transgender Law Center, which is a national trans-led organization dedicated to protecting and advancing the rights of trans and gender non-conforming people across the states. And so you'll find a link on Twitter or Tumblr or just go to supergirlsaddict.com for where you can donate. Yeah. And then other announcements. We will do one other episode in the month of June, and that one will be celebrating the other big holiday (laughs) (laughs) that comes in this month. Father's Day. Father's Day. <laughs> yes. Which we felt like would be appropriate since they brought Kara's dad back into the mix and mm-hmm. Alex has still got all her lingering dad issues. And we can talk <laughs> about true. Jean, the one true father. Yeah, the ultimate dad. <laughs> <laughs> the super dad. So that will be our next episode coming up in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And aside from that, please feel free to send us any comments, feedback, or questions to Supergirl's Attic on Tumblr, Twitter, or Instagram. And thanks for listening.